0: I'm Andrew Schwartz and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and an unclassified cloud as relates to the intelligence community, we have with us Emily Harding who is Deputy Director of our International Security Program here at CSIS. Emily, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, Emily, you have an intel background. You're a former CIA analyst. You led the bipartisan Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the committee's multi-year investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections, produced a five-volume, 1,300-page report from that endeavor. And now you're at CSIS and, and you're doing amazing things here, including this new report you have, which I want to hear all about. I mean, the report itself focuses on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the unclassified cloud and how the IC, the intelligence community, can reap the benefits of an open source intelligence revolution. So this is a mouthful here, but tell us what it's all about because it's fascinating and it's something that can really move the United States forward.
1: It is a mouthful, and I'll say in just a minute how we tried to shorten that mouthful into a snappy acronym. We did our (laughs) best. Um, So the idea here is that there are three technical revolutions that are going to really change the way that the intelligence community does its work. The first revolution is the availability of unclassified cloud in a scalable sense. I talk about in the report how the intelligence community too often is trying to take big chunks of the Internet and move it onto the high side so they can do very basic searches that anyone else would just do on Google, right? They would ask questions about like, what kind of pictures do we have of Russian tank movements, let's just say, on the borders of Ukraine? And the intelligence community, because they don't want the world to know what questions they're asking, tries to ask that question in a secure environment. That's logical, but it's also very expensive. With the advent of unclassified cloud, they can take that information, they can put it in a reasonably secure environment in an unclassified sense, and then they can use these new tools to exploit it. So that's revolution number one. Revolution number two is the availability of AI ML to process a whole bunch of data. AI ML can look at huge quantities of information and try to learn to pull out the data that's going to be most interesting for things like an intelligence analyst, somebody who's trying to see what is the actual signal amongst all of the noise. And then the third revolution is related to that, and that is just the quantity of data available and also the granularity of that data. It's just a whole different way to think about what we've often called open source intelligence. In the past, that was press reporting, you know, the Washington Post. We talked a lot about CNN int when I was a young analyst. The instruction was always don't try to be CNN because they're going to get to the story 12 hours before you are and then you're just going to look silly if you're reporting exactly what was on the TV screen 12 hours ago. But now you have really interesting data that is publicly available. One thing that I heard that that blew my mind is that, for example, a lot of corporations are collecting sound data. So if they have a big factory and they can put microphones all over that factory and they can hear when the normal sounds of a factory change, and that tells them maybe before the machines even know that something's wrong and they need to go fix it, and that can avert problems. Well, you can see how that would be really useful for a corporation, but think about it now in a shipyard. If you had microphones that were listening to a shipyard, it might sound very different if, for example, the Chinese Navy was getting ready to go on a huge deployment. You could pick up that sound and you could hear literally the signal in the noise.
0: It's fascinating. So, you know, we all hear the term AI and machine learning ML out there all the time, but you know, a lot of us didn't think that it would apply to how we do business in Washington. Why is it so important to be thinking about this now? Um, and why do you think the intelligence community hasn't embraced this yet?
1: Yeah. So John Edwards, who's a CIO for DOD now, talked about AIML as a game changer for the defense and intelligence establishments. Right now, out in the commercial space, there are a bunch of companies that are making huge use of AIML. Meanwhile, our adversaries like China have really cracked this code. And we in the intelligence community and in DOD are somewhat lagging behind. And there's some good reasons for that, fixable reasons, but good reasons. The reason that it's gonna be so important is because if we continue down this road, our adversaries are gonna know things long before we do. The commercial space is gonna know things long before the intelligence community does. And in essence, the IC is gonna be outcompeted in this space.
0: Give me an example of that. What would China or Russia or Iran learn using this, you know, against us? What could they learn that we're not currently taking advantage of?
1: So a really good example of this as it applies to the intelligence community is something called ubiquitous technical surveillance. This is a product of things like smart cities. In smart cities what you have is countries like China with blanketed surveillance across a city. They've got CCTV cameras everywhere. They've got the capability to grab data from anybody with a camera on a security cam. As a result, it's extremely difficult as an intelligence officer to operate, period. China can, let's just say that they figure out who a mole is in their operation. They can then track that person's face using AI ML across all of their meetings in a particular city, not just over the last week, but over the last two years. And they can see every single person that that person has met with, and then track those faces back to, let's just say, the U.S. Embassy, and try to figure out who's meeting with who. That kind of data not only is going to blow the cover of any intelligence officer trying to operate anywhere in China. It's also going to make it very difficult to recruit new assets to try and figure out what's going on inside the Chinese government. And it's not just inside China. One thing that China has done that's very smart is export this technology around the world. So if they go to a partner in the One Belt, One Road Initiative, for example, and they say, hey, we'd be really interested in helping you launch your 5G networks. Um, And, you know, in exchange, We'll just use all of our tech and put up all of our cameras around your city. And then bingo, they have access to all of the movements of all of the individuals around that city. And with AIML, you can use facial recognition. You can use other kinds of body measurements to try to find out who exactly is moving around and who are they meeting with. And it doesn't involve a human sitting there and staring at thousands of hours of video. It involves a computer being like, hey, right there, hour 13, this date, look at this guy.
0: So they're using this kind of technology right now, and we're not. Why are we not?
1: There are some good cultural reasons and structural reasons and policy reasons that we're not. AI is new to the Defense Department and to the intelligence community, and it has to run on a secure environment. Now, a secure environment, what does that really mean? You can run it on an unclassified cloud. And unclassified clouds are actually more secure than a lot of people assume. But then you need certain assurances that the adversary isn't looking at what you're doing and how you're manipulating the information. You can run it on a secure system. You can bring it onto what we call the high side and run it on the high side. But getting the authorization to operate has so many hoops to go through. I think in one of my pieces, I talk about it as a molasses-soaked obstacle course where it can take a year, two years, three years to get through the clearance process to operate on the high side. And a lot of the companies, that the American companies that are out there making this technology, they just don't have the capital or the patience to wait through three years of process to get up to the high side and actually be able to operate. So we're running behind partially because of our intensive security requirements. There's also just a cultural bias. The IC has the view that If it's not made here, then it's not as good as we could possibly make it. And on some things, that's true. I mean, the IC can make some very sophisticated communications devices, for example. But when there is all of this commercial technology just sitting on the shelf out there that could be used, there's really no financial or security reason to recreate that inside the IC. Instead, what we should be doing is just working with those companies to bring those tools onto this unclassified cloud environment.
0: So if you look at the current homepage of CSIS.org, you'll see that your report, which is entitled Move Over Jarvis, Meet Oscar, is on the front page. And our homepage has probably never looked so good and so high tech with this cool graphic you have up here. Tell us why you titled this Move Over Jarvis and Meet Oscar. Who is Oscar and who's Jarvis?
1: So, Oscar is that snappy acronym we tried to create. Jarvis, of course, is the personal assistant to Tony Stark in the Iron Man movies. Oh, yeah. Jarvis is this, yeah, this wonderful creature that Tony can ask any question to, and Jarvis instantly knows the answer. He can tell Tony if there's a threat out there. He can tell Tony who this person is that he's meeting with. He can even, you know, redirect the satellites if he has to. Um, Jarvis is amazing. As an analyst, when I was in the IC, my most fervent hope was that someday I could walk into my office and I could touch a button on my desktop like Tony does, and up would arise this beautiful graphic display of data, and I could manipulate it with my hands, and I could walk through it and look at it from different angles, and it would make my work, I thought, better richer, more insightful if I had that easy a way to manipulate data, and also if I didn't spend hours and hours of my day reading through completely irrelevant reports. So with that picture in my mind of this wonderful thing that could exist, I thought about these three revolutions and how to encapsulate that in an idea of a new assistant for the intelligence community. So we came up with OSCAR, open source, cloud-based, AI-enabled reporting for the intelligence community. And in my mind, OSCAR is feasible in the near term, a basic version of OSCAR, absolutely, where you could have AI looking at millions and millions of satellite images and pulling out the few that are most relevant. Um, listening to millions and millions of clips of sound and saying, this is the one that you really need to pay attention to, to taking, let's just say, I was a leadership analyst when I was at CIA, to taking all of the public statements of a particular leader, and then saying, here are some key themes. And this is how those key themes evolve over time. Here was a real breaking point where this person changed their tone on something. That would save an analyst hundreds of hours. There are also really good applications for the operational community if they're trying to pull together a bunch of information on a person who could be an asset to the IC or who could be a threat, trying to get a picture of who that person is based on all their digital dust. And then even for the support staff in the IC, the folks who do some of the really important and difficult work of supporting the analysts and the operators, I mean, they could use AI, they could use OSCAR to do things like evaluate contracts to be sure that supplies are ordered on time. Um, they could be saved hundreds of hours as well. So I just think this tool could be exceedingly useful. And while it seems like science fiction, I think it is near-term realistically possible.
0: So let's talk about some of your recommendations in this report. You talk about risk tolerance as part of culture and what recommendations do you have for adjusting that risk calculation when it comes to Oscar?
1: Some of it is really just an explicit recognition of the risk from on high. This risk intolerance, you could say, I think comes from two places. One is that something that Cornstone has pointed out in her work, the IC engages in very risky behavior on a daily basis because that's just core to the job. So what they do is they try to minimize risk in every other possible environment. And one of those comes with things like acquisition, contracting, not incorporating new and untested technologies. So I think there's just a general cultural hesitancy to pull in things that are new. The other thing is that our contracting officers and our acquisition officers, they are taught to minimize risk and then also to measure deliverables in a very specific way. We talk about statements of work. Statements of work mean that they say, okay, I am being asked to create this capability that can do the following five things, and we're going to stick very specifically to those five things deviation from the task or deviation from the cost or deviation from the time frame, are all big no-nos and there's no tolerance for that. We really need to shift to a mindset of a statement of outcomes. So instead of sitting down with a vendor and saying we need these five capabilities, what you say is I would really like for a tool that can do X. And then you let American companies do what they do best. You let them innovate. You let them come up with new ideas about how to accomplish that goal And you give them a little bit of flexibility when it comes to things like time. One of the really critical things here is that, you know, AI is moving so fast. When you sign the contract, if it takes 12 months to get the technology in the door, it's already obsolete. So we need to build in some flexibility. We need to build in some risk tolerance in that time frame so that by the time it actually lands on analyst desks, it's still really useful. So I think that while the bias has been towards minimizing risk, That's partially because this organization, these organizations right now don't really see an urgent need that would let them overcome that risk intolerance. We need to start thinking about this as a now problem, as an urgent need. And so that will, I think, shift the risk calculation a little bit more towards, okay, let's take this chance. Let's explicitly accept that maybe this isn't going to go perfectly and that's okay.
0: How do we get the workforce in the right place to accept Oscar?
1: Yeah. So I was a busy analyst once upon a time. And the way that life goes when you're a very busy analyst is that your boss comes to you and says, we have this new development. It's really important. We need you to write a PDB. And because the PDB has to run tomorrow, we need it written in the next eh, two hours. Well, okay. Am I going to take those two hours? And am I going to test out a fun, new, but completely untested tool? Am I going to try and incorporate them in my work? or am i going to just do what i already know how to do and just pound it out i'm definitely going to do the latter when the president needs to know something he needs to know it right now and that's not the time to try to incorporate something brand new
0: right cuz pdb is presidential daily brief is what you're talking about
1: exactly the president's daily brief
0: so this is this is serious now your boss has come to you and said this needs i need this in 2 hours cuz it's going into the pdb
1: right and you seriously have two hours to take the expertise that you already have, to pull the information that you know is in the systems together, and to write something, you know, page, page and a half for the president to communicate a very important development. Then hopefully, if, if things are going well, you have another few hours in which to work with graphic designers or to work through the editing staff and to get it all polished so they can publish it 5 a.m. the next morning. Now, that does not leave a lot of time for exploration of new data for new channels, So what we need to do now is find ways to create the demand signal in analysts. And the way that that's going to work best is by taking small chunks of analysts offline for a little while to let them learn what this capability is and what it can do so they can build what we call an Oscar habit. Uh, When they have those two hours, rather than like scrambling through the existing databases, they can turn to Oscar and they can say, Oscar, I need you to find all the relevant information on this topic while I am searching on the classified systems for the key nuggets that are really going to make a difference in this story. And maybe the writing of that PDB goes from two hours to one hour, or maybe the two hour PDB is much richer in its analysis than it would have been without Oscar.
0: Emily, your report outlines recommendations, but it also outlines some bold steps. Why do you think these bold steps are necessary and and what are they? What do you recommend?
1: So there is a general consensus inside the national security establishment that AI is the future, that this is going to be very important for the way that we go about doing business. This is what we call in D.C. the very technical term navel gazing, where we all stare and we say, yes, this is important. But in the end, you have to find a way to actually get from here to there. And people have already sort of played around the edges of this problem. They've said AI is important. We have the National Security Commission on AI. We have initiatives in the Pentagon. We have initiatives in the IC to run pilot programs. And all of these things, I think, have created a buzz around AI, but haven't actually implemented the steps necessary to make it a part of everyday work. So with this report, we tried to do several things. First, we tried to take this good initiative, this good momentum, and channel it into actionable recommendations. The other thing we tried to do was say, okay, these actionable recommendations are steps that we need to take. But this is so important that if those initial steps don't work, if that's just more playing around the edges, and we don't actually capitalize the momentum and make this a fact of life, what we really need to do next is accept the risk, take the bold steps, make it happen. It's that important. So a lot of those bold steps are things that are going to make government employees very uncomfortable. It has to do with money and it has to do with contracts. (laughs) On the money piece, one really dramatic step that could be taken is to give the ODNI a lot of budgetary authority over AI decision making. Now, every agency in the IC is going to hate that. But, you know, if they're not getting their own acts together and making this happen, it's time for the ODNI to step in. On the contracting front, it means throwing aside all of our existing acquisition processes and then instead looking at new forms of acquisition, new forms of contracts. We talked about the statement of outcomes earlier as opposed to the statement of works. One of the things that we recommend is creating a new contract vehicle that provides ultimate flexibility for things like really high iterative new technologies like AI And that makes people uncomfortable because it's new, it's different, it doesn't abide by all of the governments, you know, very carefully put in place rules. But that's important. Our acquisition process really needs an overhaul, especially when it comes to things like software acquisition.
0: So what about this is new and different? How's this report and the concept of Oscar different from, you know, what they've done in the past or even what's been suggested in the past?
1: Right, Um, one of my wonderful research assistants in the last year, I set him on the task of trying to put together a timeline of open source reporting throughout the last 80 years. And you can see the way that the IC has tried to grapple with how to incorporate things that are unclassified, things that are open to the world in this highly classified environment. And what you can see when you look at that timeline is the ups and downs. You see that like it has, open source has its moment and then it sort of falls off because it doesn't fit right. And then there's like another test at it, but it doesn't really work, so it falls off again. And then right around 2012, 2013, you see a huge cut in funding for open source capabilities, and then it hasn't really caught back up. That entire timeline is built on this concept of open source reporting as basically stuff that's in the press. Maybe you get a copy of the Saigon Times, and you have it translated, and there you go, that's open source reporting. What's different now is a complete transformation in the way we have to think about available data that's out there in the public. Everything from Twitter feeds to the, this particular Russian Facebook called Vkontakte, where you can find out all kinds of interesting things about what Russian operatives are up to all over the world, down to some of the more interesting little bespoke pieces of information like that sound data that I was talking about earlier. And if you look at companies like Maxar or um, Planet or Hawkeye 360, I mean, they are doing things that only governments could do in the very recent past. They are going to space. They're collecting really granular data on the entire planet and making it available for a price. That kind of data we just can't ignore in the IC.
0: You know, it's interesting. Our late colleague, Dr. Zbigniew Brzezinski, used to always say that he had access to 95% of the same information that he had when he was actually National Security Advisor outside of that office. And he said that when he was inside, there was only 5% of the information that he utilized that was classified. And so basically, he assessed that he could make you know just basically all the same decisions he made as National Security Advisor from the outside as from the inside due to open source information. I can think of no better person who would have really embraced the Oscar system. So Emily, thank you for this great report. It is really fascinating. It's called Move Over Jarvis, Meet Oscar. The subtitle is open source, cloud-based, AI-enabled reporting for the intelligence community by Emily Harding. And you can find it on our website at CSIS.org. Emily, thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter about this complex and interesting set of issues.
1: Thank you, Andrew. This is fun. And I want to say that this is a doable thing. I want to inspire the IC to action with this one.
0: We're into it. Thanks so much, Emily.
1: Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify.